I've taken on too much these days. But hasn't everyone, hasn't everyone I? Well, I'm not complaining. Welcome to My Comic Shop History. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. My Comic Shop History is a 10-episode podcast event that chronicles the rise and fall of New York comic book store Alternate Realities. Each week, I will be speaking to past and present owners, customers, and employees as we discuss our experiences at the store. My guest for this inaugural episode is Steve Odo, one of the store's founders and currently its sole owner. In 1992, Steve Odo embarked upon a journey from real estate attorney to comic book retailer. 23 years later, that journey is at an end. On February 1st, 2015, Steve announced the closing of Alternate Realities in a scathing Facebook post that has garnered many strong reactions, both positive and negative. We'll be talking about all of that and more in this debut episode recorded in Alternate Realities. Steve, welcome. Thank you very much. I guess I'm just a little stunned. Scathing. I, I never thought of it as scathing. I just thought, that's me. That's why I talk. Well, that is absolutely true. Uh, if nothing else, you were true to yourself, and if the post had been overly sentimental, it definitely would not have been you. <laughs> this podcast is called My Comic Shop History. To get us started, I'd like to know a little bit about your comic shop history. I think it was when I started law school that uh, I went to my one of the first comic book shops uh, that, I, uh, that I was a regular attendee um, in Albany uh, called Fantico. And that was where, where I'd go every Friday after classes, pick up your weekly, weekly supply, and uh, come home and just read comic books all evening. Uh, it, it wasn't, I didn't look at it as an inspiration for wanting to own a store. It's just that it's just where I picked up my stuff, and they were friendly. And uh, uh, even when I, went, I spent a year in Japan after I graduated from law school, but they were, these guys are good enough to pull the books, my, the titles I wanted. They pulled it for me for a year, and after I got back to the United States, I went straight there and bought all my stuff. Um, then it came back to Westchester. Again, there were a few stores that started popping up, and I would frequent them, and that's where I went to Heroes World in White Plains in the Galleria Mall, and that's where I met Kevin Halstead, who had always dreamed of owning his own store. He was a manager. I guess uh, the other store that became my regular stop was a place called Comics Plus that was run by Gene Doherty uh, up in Mount Kisco, New York. That's when I had moved up to Chappaqua, and I uh, became a regular customer there. Uh, Gene, of course, had a store for many years, and then it was Gene's dream to have a second store. So between Gene's dream and Kevin's dream of owning a store, uh, the three of us got together and ended up opening alternate realities. And, of course, that dream would go on to become a nightmare. Oh, the worst kind. I feel we should maybe describe the store that we're sitting in as we record this episode. Uh, it's been described by one of our critics as a, uh, has the look of a garage sale, I think it was. Yard sale. Yard sale. And I guess as a collector, I think a yard sale is great because you never know what you're going to find as you dig through piles of stuff. Um, I think just the other day we found a Star Wars, a rare Star Wars comic book, which uh, had no idea. It's a, in high grade, it would have been a $5,000 book. You know, our copy is only a $200, $250 copy, but still it's fantastic that we could find that maybe it'd been buried here for years. Uh, I remember finding a Fantastic Four number six at the bottom of a milk crate. Um, it didn't even have a bag and a board to protect it. It was just in a, a pile of comic books, and there it was. Um, I guess, I think for the collector who comes in here, and even if he comes in every week, when he starts suddenly looking at some uh, a, a different pile or through a box and finds some treasures, that's the fun of collecting, too. So I don't mind that look. I think uh, if you want a boutique, you shouldn't be shopping here. Fair enough. And the line between clutter and discovery is certainly a fine one. And, you know, depending on the type of fan and customer you are, you know, you might be looking for a certain experience in a comic book store. And if you are looking for that element of discovery, of, of boxes to go through and, and discoveries to be made, then, then this is certainly your store. Yeah, not too many left. So, And just think about all the things that you might find as you're packing up. I'm looking forward to it. I know there's, there's going to be treasures that I find that I've forgotten that we bought these collections 17 years ago and finally going through it now. It's like, wow, now these are even more valuable than we thought. But um, I'm sure we find boxes of stuff that's like, wow, they've gone down in value and nobody wants it. But uh, again, that's part of, the I think, the world of collecting. 
Now, in terms of you as a collector, what sorts of things did you read and collect? I probably bought every Marvel comic book that ever came out in the 60s and 70s. Um, I didn't, there are titles I didn't even like but, and characters I didn't care about, but because it was a Marvel comic, I bought it. Um, I actually like DC characters better, but um, I, and I picked up a lot of those too. You know, again, I, I was lucky that mom didn't throw all that kind of stuff out, so I had all this, all these uh, Silver Age books. Now, eventually, you sold your comic book collection. What motivated that decision, and do you have any regrets about it? Um, somewhere along the way, I guess maybe after I hit fifty or so, um, I suddenly realized that if I were to die, my family would have no idea what to do with the collection. I suppose. There are, I guess, it's sentimental stuff that I would have kept, and that, that's about it. What What were some of those things that, that you wish you had kept for sentimental reasons? Um, there was an Avengers 25 where the Avengers fought Doctor Doom. Um, my mother bought that for me when I was, uh, gee, I was I was just homesick that day with a cold, so she went to the uh, local drugstore, I think, and uh, picked it up for me. And um, mine is was all dog-eared. But, um, and so, you know, the value is very, very little uh, monetarily, but uh, it, it just had a lot of sentimental value. I wish I hadn't sold that one because I could always buy the book again. But it won't be the same thing. Now, this is certainly not the first time that I've interviewed you. In fact, by my count, it's the third. I first interviewed you for a profile that I wrote in college. I then interviewed you for a film I made about the store called My Comic Shop Documentary. And here we are again. There have been many times over these past few years when talking to friends about you or giving interviews where I've been asked to describe you. And the description that I always come back to is that you're a man of contradictions. And I think that's a description that could certainly apply to a lot of people, but I think it's especially true in your case. On the one hand, you can be very gregarious, you strike up conversations with the customers, you've cultivated this group of customers and employees who go out to dinner on Saturday nights, yet you can also be very misanthropic. Um, you know, you've said that the human race doesn't deserve self-rule, and you've marveled or lamented the stupidity of the human race. And there are two stories in particular that I think sort of encapsulate this dichotomy. So first, would you mind telling the Eisenhower story? Because I think oh. it's very revealing uh, and, and sheds a lot of insight into your personality. Okay. The abridged version. You know, okay. We don't need to know uh, what you had for lunch that day. Well, let's see. I was, uh, it was third grade. I was eight years old. Uh, the uh, elementary school had a library club, and we were taking a trip to Albany, New York, because it was the capital. And uh, one of the places we stopped off was a, uh, I guess, uh, what do you call it? Um, a landmark, a historic landmark. I believe it's Schuyler Mansion. But uh, it's an old house that, you know, was brown during colonial days. And... Um, we were given a tour of the interior by an old man. Again, I was only eight years old, but here's this, to me a tall old man who was bald and looked like Eisenhower. And um, uh, just to preface it, I, I used to be a, a straight-A student, uh, the teacher's pet, never got in trouble type of guy, a kid. So we're uh, upstairs on the second floor, and uh, the guy's giving his lecture. Uh, a kid next to me taps me on the shoulder and says, What time is it? So I just kind of held up my wristwatch so you could see. But and I didn't say anything. But the, uh, the old man stops the lecture, points at me, crowd parts like the Red Sea. And he's saying, hey, son, do you want to give this talk? And being eight years old and not used to talking back to an adult, I uh, said no. And everybody was like, ooh, Steve Odo got in trouble. And... Uh, it's something that's stuck with me all these years, I guess what, some over 50 years. I never forgot it, never forgot him. So when I went to uh, law school in Albany, on certain weekends I'd get in the car and I'd drive around Albany looking for this, this mansion on the top of some hill someplace because I wanted to find this guy. I wanted to, uh, he's long dead I'm sure, but I wanted to find this guy and tell him what happened and tell him how he had traumatized me when I was eight years old. Uh, unfortunately, he's, I'm sure he's dead and uh, I don't even know if I should say this, but uh, if I had been able to find out who he was, I'd like to find out where he was buried so I can dance on his grave. But, yeah, I, I, I tend to hold a grudge. The, and one of the things that everybody says is uh, Steve Odo never forgets. So uh, I, I will always remember maybe one day, you know, maybe in heaven or hell I'll find him and I'll be able to kick his ass. I'm curious, how much time did you actually devote 
to searching for this man? Well, probably a few weekends over three years. I mean, I could probably have done it more seriously by looking up to where the mansion really was, if it's even still standing. But uh, That wouldn't have been as much fun. It was not much fun as driving around Albany. Then on the other side, we have the tremendous romantic. I remember you told me once about your Halloween queens and Valentine vixens. Could you explain who they were? Oh, I used to, I used to be big with uh, a correspondence. I used to write letters all the time. Uh, I used to give you know, birthday cards and Christmas cards. And, um, you know, Hallmark loved me. But uh, I guess what I would do is at Halloween and at Valentine's, I would buy one of those boxes of uh, cards. And I would pick 12 uh, girls that I knew that, uh, well, I'll say that not that they were deserving of being Halloween queens, but, you know, 12 girls that I liked that I thought were nice people that deserved to have some recognition. What were the criteria? Was it just that they were nice? It wasn't that, just that they no, were nice. No, no, it really was. It really was. that these, these are nice girls. Not that I had any kind of romantic interest in them, but these are some of the nicer people in the world. And so, you know, I figured I'd and then get Valentine vixens uh, for Valentine's and Halloween queens at Halloween. And uh, pass them. It's like I suppose, like anybody else who just passes candy to everybody in the class. But I just had the twelve. I did that for a few years. What about the ones who who weren't queens and vixens? Did they feel left out? I don't think they even knew who I was. <laughs> Somehow, I feel like people probably knew who you were. <laughs> did they know that they were called Halloween queens and Valentine vixens? Yeah, I think it said so in the card. <laughs> were they numbered? No. No. Oh, that would have been interesting. Oh well, no, no. Now, you mentioned law school. You attended Albany Law School, and you ended up practicing for a period of time before opening alternate realities. What was the law school experience like? Oh, I think it's the closest thing to hell that I've ever been through, except maybe the comic book store now. I mean, we, I went to law school because I knew I, wasn't, I didn't have what it takes to uh, be a doctor, and I had no interest in being an accountant. And when you're a senior and you're sitting around with your friends saying, what are we going to do? Uh, there weren't too many choices. I never enjoyed it. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad it was over. And I guess with every young person that comes into the store and says that they're going to go to law school, I try to not, I don't want to say discourage it, but I try to talk them out of it to let them see the, the reality of it. But, um, yes, why well, in fact you tried to do the same to me. Yes. And, uh, that really worked out well. As you've described to me, eventually, um, business wasn't so great where you were working and associates started to be let go on a fairly regular basis. Every other week, some associate would be brought into the, uh, or called into the, uh, I guess, managing partner's office, and basically given his notice that you have, well, when times are good, you had six months to get out, and then it became three months to get out. Um, when my time came, I guess after, I guess it was early January of 92, uh, that's just after I had met with um, Gene and Kevin about opening a store, because they wanted to do it. Again, Gene always wanted to manage his own store. And, uh, uh, I mean, Gene wanted to have a second store. Kevin wanted to manage his own. And uh, I, I always thought it would kind of be cool to own one. But um, right after we had that talk is when I got, my, I got the call in. And I decided I didn't want to stay the three months because you're, you're basically staying the three months to, like, put resumes out and try to get a job someplace else. And it looks better if it looks like you're working someplace, not just unemployed and looking for something. So I just said, give me my severance, and I left. And then uh, we opened the store. So I guess the timing was such that I guess it just kind of fell into place. So Alternate Realities opened its doors on June 19, 1992, located in Scarsdale within the county of Westchester. In terms of the, you know, the secret origin of Alternate Realities, um, how did you guys settle on the name? What other names did you consider? Well, I was sitting in a deli one day, and I just had a legal pad, and I was writing... I think I must have written about two dozen names, possible names. Um, I can't remember any of the others. Not I don't even have one I, other name. Not one other name. Um, now I, that actually could have been a good name for a store. What's that? Not one other name. No, <laughs> I I kind of uh, over the years I've I've realized that again. Uh, a lot of people aren't smart enough to understand, or even say or spell alternate realities. You get alternative realties. You get all kinds of problems, and so I. I said, you know, we should have made the store just called the comic book shop or something like that. You know, something easy for people, the comic book store. But um, but every now and then you talk to somebody who who will say, well, that's a great name because they get it. Well, it's a great name for right for people who get it, yeah. but for people who might might be looking for a comic book store but might not be quite that savvy, 
Um, I don't know if it's it's really right there for them. Yeah. It's interesting though because um, you know we mentioned before how how misanthropic you can be, and you again you've you've spoken about the stupidity of the human race. You actually gave people a good amount of credit when you came up with that name that they would know what it was. Were you just more optimistic back then? No, I don't think I was optimistic. I guess I didn't. Uh, I wasn't as wise as I am today. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess it. I guess from my point of view, it didn't seem like a difficult name. And it's only after we had established the store that people were able to reveal to me how stupid they are. <laughs> so it, I, I just, uh, after a while, I realized, wow, I, I, you know, that whole kiss rule, keep it simple, stupid, you know, that applies to just about everything. Yeah. Well, as someone who worked here for many years and would answer the phone, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Hmm. But it is, I mean, it's a cool name for sure for people who are, who are, you know, in on it. Um, and as far as the location, how did you guys find this place? And what was what was this location before it was alternate realities? Oh, this is a piano store. Um, the the way we found the place was I basically took a map of Lower Westchester and I put a um, I guess a post it at, at the location of every comic book shop in Westchester because in the early '90s they were popping up like uh, like like nothing. Yeah, everybody wanted to open a comic book shop. Um, so we found an area that seemed to not, well, there weren't too many areas that didn't have it. And at the time, there weren't too many vacancies. And that was our problem. Uh, there were only a handful of places that we could look. Um, we opened here, which is only, I'll say, not even a mile away from the biggest store that existed at the time, Dragon's Den. And I remember a lot of other stores said to us that we were crazy to open so close to the den. Um, but that we actually opened to compete with them. What were the early days of the store like? In the beginning, it was great, the first month, because I guess we were the new kid on the block, so you had everybody coming in. Um, I, I, I remember Gene and Kevin, who both had comic book store experience, were just, uh, I guess, in awe, astonished at how much money was coming in, because it was nothing compared to what they used to, or what they were used to with the other stores. Um, I didn't know what to compare it to, so it, it just seemed to me this is what it's supposed to be. But as time wore on, um, it became tougher. People lost interest in, in comics. We were ordering poorly. It was, it was a combination of different things. So that it came to the point where we were just here killing time and uh, really drawing no salary. So um, you know, Gene, Gene is, is a mailman, so he had a regular job. This was something on the side for him. Uh, at his own shop, he had his folks running it so that uh, he'd just go in the afternoon to finish it up. Um, Kevin, this was a full thing for Kevin, but uh, since we weren't making any money, he really couldn't uh, keep going. I was married at the time, so that um, you know, I had a wife, what my wife was supporting me. Um, but it was it was tough going in the beginning, and uh, when they left, I figured, you know, I, I again, it's that like the law school thing: don't want to quit, too stubborn. So I said, look, got to keep trying, and. Um, I guess after 23 years, I'm tired of trying, so it's time to go. <laughs> you mentioned being married at the time. The fact that she's your ex-wife might answer this question, but what, what was her take on the store, especially during those early, difficult days? Gee, I don't think we ever really discussed it. I mean, this is uh, what I did, you know? And, um, you know, it was making some money, but uh, certainly not enough to, uh, to have a living wage. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't know that anybody ever goes through life without any kind of money struggles. But it, it's you know the store wasn't uh, providing for us. Speaking of money, what were what were some of the things that you did uh, to try to make some money to cover the rent during those early days? I only did that once. Well, you're you're referring to the the casino. I um, it was a Saturday afternoon, and I had just finished closing up. I had I was having dinner with Brandon actually, and. Uh, Brandon is one of the former owners of the store and currently a comic book creator. Right. And he'll be a guest on a, an upcoming episode. So Brandon and I were having dinner, and I guess it was Gene came over, and I said, well, we didn't do so well today, but what I can do is take this money and drive to the casino in Connecticut and try to make something. If we made 100 or $200, it would help towards the rent. If I were to lose a couple hundred dollars, it almost doesn't make a difference because we were so much in the hole. So, uh, so Gene said, go ahead. So that night after eating, I just drove out to Connecticut. It was about, gosh, I don't know, two hours, two and a half hours. Played all night. 
lost a couple hundred dollars, drove back from Connecticut, and I had to open the store the next morning. So basically, I pulled an all-nighter. Um, I never did that again, but uh, that's how, I guess, desperate we were. You know, it, it, it's just every dollar made a difference. You also shoveled snow in the winter, too, correct? Well, that wasn't for the store. That's because, um, again, in the early years, you had a lot of kids from the local high school hanging out here. And uh, sometimes when you had the snowstorms that are so bad that there's impossible to drive, we knew we were having no, no customers that day. So it just seems ridiculous to even be open. So since it was snowing so hard and the kids are just standing around here, I told everybody, go home, get your shovels. You know, they're all walking distance. And then they came back with the shovels. And uh, we closed the store, put a sign up. They were closed. Uh, walked down the street and started knocking on doors of the, of the houses around here. And my logic was that if there are like five of us, it would take no time at all to do a driveway. Um, so that instead of asking for 40 or $50, you could do it for $30. And we just wipe out as many driveways as we could in a certain amount of time. Um, and so we did that. So you just had, you had this group of youths with you. Yeah. And you were yeah. the ringleaders, like well, Oliver, Oliver I'm like, like Fagan, yes. Uh, yeah. So, so my, my boys and I, we'd shovel and then we'd come back to the store. And, you know, we'd um, uh, make some hot chocolate and we split the money. And uh, how did you how did you split the money evenly? Everybody got a fair share because everybody did their fair share of work. Now, eventually business picked up, but not before your two co-founders left the store. Yeah, we've had many changes in, in um, it. We're, we're a sub S corporation. So we're, I'll say many changes in shareholders. We're, we're in seven. This is the seventh incarnation of ownership. And uh, again, if the sale of the store goes through, which may or may not happen, That'll be the eighth owner. Um, I guess I, I, I'll say six out of the seven times, I, I, always has, I always had something to do with the store. There was one short period where I was out, and uh, somehow I got dragged back in. In terms of uh, having co-owners versus being the sole proprietor, what is your preference? It would probably make life easier in some ways, uh, made life more difficult in many ways. Um, I go by the adage that democracy does not work in a corporation. When there were four of us and we were trying to discuss what, how much of what comic to order, how many copies, and, it, and we started having debates with every single title, but we have to run through hundreds, if not thousands, of titles a month, it just became ridiculous. It, since no, this is all non-returnable product, if I thought we were only going to sell six and one of the partners wanted to order 20 copies, I said, well, We'd be stuck with 14 if I turned out to be right. And then next thing you know, blame is going around about why we've spent more money than we have to on, on a particular product. Um, it came to a point where we're... I, I, for everybody who always talks about wanting to buy into the store, or you know, they, they and their friends want to buy the store, I would always say, if you buy the store, you guys aren't going to be friends at the end of it. And um, it, it's, like, it's like a marriage, you know? It's... Uh, if you can't compromise, if you can't work things out, you end up hating each other in the end. Um, in the end, for me, I, I said to the other, the other three of, the, of this group, um, you either have to buy me out or have to buy you out. But it was just not working. To the point where you hate coming in. And uh, I guess because, I guess my name is associated with the store longest, they all kind of felt, well, this is really Steve's store. So, uh, and these are all good guys. It's just that it, some things don't work. So uh, since then, I've just been on my own. It's a lot of work, and that's why I'm so tired, and I wouldn't mind getting out. But um, it probably, th this way at least, if something goes wrong, if I over-ordered on something, it's my fault, and there's no finger pointing. So I have to, that's why I have to be extra careful, and maybe that's why I'm more tired. What, if any, were your biggest misconceptions about what it would be like to own and run a comic book store? It's very naive of me to say, but I don't think I had any preconceptions of what it was going to be like. Um, I didn't think, I think a, a lot of people who open stores, think, uh, comic book stores, think that they're just going to sit around and read comic books all day and have a good time. Um, I think uh, a lot of people who shop at comic book stores think that owners sit around and read comic books and have an easy life. I don't think the average person understands how difficult it is to run a small business. And I think it's going to be the same whether you have a, a, a floor, your florist or a, have a pizza parlor or whatever. I think it's very tough to own a small business. And people have no idea of all the things that go on behind when your air conditioning is not working or your lights are out or the toilet's clogged or whatever, or you're out of toilet paper. You know, the, the small business owner has to take care of everything. 
and you're, you're not only just the the the, uh, the the greeter at the door. You're security. You're the account. You're the uh, accounts payable, accounts receivable. Um, it's it's uh, you're doing all the ordering. You're doing all the you know communications with all your 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 distributors. Um, and then you have to be nice to people, and again, when you know a lot of people, again, I'll say ninety percent of the people are good people, and they understand how tough it is, and, and uh, they're not, they're not, can I say pain in the ass? But um, but there's always that you know there's always that one person. It only takes one person every day to like ruin your day, and uh, the the world is not has no shortage of those people. So um, you know at least we never have to worry about running out of assholes. Um, can I say that? And as a result of that, <laughs> now when this uh, podcast is on iTunes, it's going to have that little little rectangle that says explicit next to it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll rephrase that if you like. No, that's perfectly fine. Uh, Do you like doing a podcast? No. Really? No. I, I, I'm not. You, you know that I'm not. I don't like to be in the spotlight. It, 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 uh, I always want to be the power behind the throne. I want to be the FBI guy who finds the fingerprints, not the guy who makes the arrest. And does the announcement for the news. It's interesting that you say you don't like to be in the spotlight. I mean, on the one hand, you certainly don't seek it out. But at the same time, again, now there have been multiple times where I've had either a camera and or a microphone in front of you. And you, you don't shy away from it. No, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not scared of it. Just I, I don't particularly like it. I, I never want to be in showbiz. But it's one of those things where you, you have to stand in front of the judge and you have to talk. You talk. Um... You know, you have to deal with people. You deal with people. Uh, I guess my thing is that I deal with people sometimes is a little uh, harsh. So uh, it gets people the wrong way. <laughs> Perfe perfect segue. Uh, okay. In terms of how you sometimes treat people harshly, you are known for, and you take great pride in, shattering people's dreams, as you like to call it, when they come in with an item or, or a collection that they're looking to sell. Um, Comic Book Men, uh, the reality series uh, that's that's set at Kevin Smith's comic book shop, is basically comic store pawn stars. But you've been living that for years. So do you want to talk a little bit about what it's like when people bring their items in to try to sell them? Um, I guess the thing about Comic Book Men that bothers me is that having lived it, you realize that reality TV is... That's, that's, that's what got me to understand that reality TV is fake. Um... Because what happens to them, it doesn't happen in a comic book store. It's all staged. Uh, when people walk in with stuff, it's never so fantastic. Uh, when people ask questions, uh, it, it takes a great deal of patience not to want to just scream. Um, no Celebrities don't, well, I mean, we've had our share of celebrities, but it's nothing like what they have. Because it just, you know, you don't have the you know, cast of Star Trek or something having to walk in looking for something. Uh, you don't have Adam West walking in one day. You know, you don't have a Batmobile drive up to the front. W with the stuff that comes in here, uh, as far as uh, collections, the, uh, I say the average person comes in with stuff that they say, oh, we've got old comic books, but it's only 20 or 30 years old. And in comic books, that's not old at all. Um, again, back in the 90s, everybody was buying comic books. Every good American owns the death of Superman, five times over, unopened. Um, they made millions, and, uh, and, and there aren't even 100,000 people who want it. So that book will never be valuable. But um, again, it's not that I enjoy Shattering Dreams. It's just that people come in here thinking that they're going to sell me their collection and they're going to be able to take the family out for a steak dinner. And I have to tell them, well, if I buy your collection, aside from being a waste of my money, I, uh, you'll be able to take your family to McDonald's, but they can only order off the dollar menu. Um, I think... Uh, there are times when some people come in with stuff that's in such terrible condition. It's like if they're trying to sell me a car, it's got no wheels, no steering wheel, no radio, nothing. And they think, but this is a million-dollar car. Uh, same thing with comic books. I had a kid come in with an X-Men 1, and he said, I looked at it and said, this is in such terrible shape that maybe it would retail for about 75 or or $100, but I wouldn't even pay you 50 for it. And he's like, 50 This is a $1,000 book. And he left in a huff. And I'm thinking to myself, most people don't know what they're talking about. And uh, they don't understand condition. So, uh, you know, f for those guys, I don't mind shouting in dreams. You feel bad for some of the people who are nice people who really think that, well, gee, you know, um, this might be worth something. And they have, the reality is that it's not. 
I, I remember one instance where uh, there, was a, there was a person I was talking to and after I had shattered their dreams and told them that their stuff really wasn't worth anything, there was a couple standing behind him and they had brought in some stuff too. But since they had heard my speech, they figured that their stuff's not worth anything either. So there was almost like a, I got so good at shattering dreams that it just ricocheted off the first guy, hit the second couple, and I didn't have to do it all over again. Um, I always wanted to have one of those little buttons that you could push and it have the sound of glass breaking. So the person would say, what's that? And I go, those are your dreams. But um, yeah, again, most times it's, it's, very, it's very rare when somebody comes in with something so spectacular. And sometimes, I guess because I'm a collector, I would look at the person and say, well, gee, you know, why would you want to get rid of this? This is such a great book. Um, I guess most times, I guess, because they need the money or sometimes they just don't care. It was, it was handed down to them. But again, like with young guys that come in with a collection of stuff that's nothing fantastic, but it's just a good collection of nice books, I'd say, why do you want to get rid of this? And it would always be, inevitably, it would be, well, my girlfriend wants me to get rid of it. And my reaction would always be, well, get rid of the girlfriend. You know, you're, you're, a, young, you're a young guy. You'll have a new girlfriend next year. And, uh, but the comic books will be with you forever. And they go, yeah. And they keep it. Because I guess at this point, you know, I feel like I've owned everything and sold everything at least once. So if I buy the thing or I don't buy the thing, it doesn't bother me at all anymore. Uh, there's nothing that comes in that so impresses me that I say, gee, I've got I've to own this book. Is there anything that you wanted to see that you're disappointed never came through the store? That either you wanted to actually buy and own or that you just wanted to maybe see and hold? Nothing really comes to mind. I mean, I've had the few incidents, instances where it's been something that impressed me, which very little impresses me anymore. The, uh, there's the, um, the guy who walked in with a Batman 1. When he said he bought it at, a, I think, a farm or some a farm sale or a garage sale, and uh, he paid, I think, what did he say, $100? I thought, well, he probably bought the, the reprint, and yeah, I don't think it's the real thing. He goes, no, I think it's real, and he brought it in, and sure enough, it was the real thing. And again, I always say, well, we've all seen the Batman one in, encased in, a, in, a, in some sort of graded uh, protective case. Um, we've all read it or seen it in reprint form. But I, here I was, I was holding this comic book. I wasn't wearing museum gloves or anything, so my oils were getting all over this old book. And I'm flipping through this thing, and I'm holding history in my hand, and I said, that's impressive. Um, that, that was uh, one of the few times I've had a real thrill holding something like that. Are people ever turned off by your responses, or do you think people overall seem to appreciate your honesty? I think they appreciate the honesty. I mean, I get the impression they are. I mean, a lot of times we're laughing about it because you know, in many cases they know they have nothing, you know, and in some cases where they're actually totally naive, you know, I, I've, I, at least I've given them, the, taken the time to educate them about it. You know, most times I'll, I guess because it doesn't matter to me, I'll say, you can give this to your coworker and, and let him give it to his son and tell the coworker to buy me lunch next week. That's about all it's worth anymore. Or give this, uh, I always say, you know, you should give out comic books at Halloween instead of candy. But I said, but quite frankly, kids today would like egg your house if you do that. Um, you know, you could say the kids in the neighborhood here, you know, take these comic books and stay off my lawn. But uh, that's about all it's worth. And that's uh, the majority of stuff that people walk in with. You know, once in a while there's a gem, but it's so rare. Um, and even if I don't buy the stuff, I, I appreciate people walking in to show me their stuff. And, um, and I can educate them a little bit about what I think about it. I don't need to cheat somebody to get their product, to get their possession. Or vice versa. I mean, I've never seen you give anyone the hard sell trying to get them to, to buy something. If anything, I've seen the opposite. I've seen you talk customers out of buying something. Because they really, they really didn't want it. It's like, what, what's the point? You know, they go home and regret what they've done. It's like, I... But you make a sale. Yeah, but... Uh, I'm trying to avoid, it's like being the lawyer in me. I'm trying to avoid the problem in the future where they come back a week later and say, you know, I really don't want this. It's like, uh, I really don't want to sell it to you. So it would be great if we just don't do this transaction now. Speaking of problems with customers, I think that brings us to the decision to close alternate realities. Um, for as long as I've known you, and I think this goes even <laughs> beyond that, but for as long as I've known you, there's been this ever-present threat that you would sell or close. And now... Um, it's actually happening. Why now? You know, I'll get up at 7 o'clock in the morning and work on the order form until about 10.30 when I head out to come here. 
that's also be, to go to the post office and mail things or go to the bank to make the deposit at the store. Um, I'm here till 7, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. I go home, have dinner. And uh, after the dishes are washed, I will work on the order form until 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. And this is what I do every single day. Whether, so whether I'm here or not, I'm working for the store. Uh, it, it's pretty much drained me of uh, not my life force, but I'm just tired. And uh, I don't get it. Again, while I appreciate the stuff, I can still go to a convention, walk around, and appreciate what I see on the walls and what people are selling. I don't have the desire to own it anymore. And um, I, I guess at the same time, even here, I, I'll go through the Euroform and I'll appreciate it. i say, well, that's a cool statue. I don't think I just I don't need to to have one here, and I guess I've I've uh, the the uh, the thrill is gone. In addition to those long hours and and personal struggles, um, one of the main reasons that you've cited for deciding to close the store now um, are the customers who you said have left you in the lurch, and I think this is the time to discuss your closing announcement. So on February first, you posted a lengthy, as is your style, uh, message on the store's Facebook page uh, announcing that alternate realities would close in June. You then proceed to, to point out um, different categories of customers and even specific individuals um, in, in a number of instances. Um, but the crux of it is that many of these customers have, have ordered items and then not bought them. And there are variations within that, but that, that seems to be the, uh, you know, the, the crux of it. And then you say, it's come to that point where keeping the store going is no longer worth the struggle. So I guess what, when you're, when you're crafting this message, sort of what, what's going through your mind? How much thought do you give this? Did you, were you thinking about how people might react to this? Or was it just more about expressing what you needed to say? Yeah, I wasn't looking for a reaction. I think uh, I spent some time writing it, but it's like, uh, I was not like writing a legal brief, but I was actually pretty careful about what I wanted to write. Um... um I guess, as you probably realize, I kind of don't care what people think. Um, this is what I wanted to say because this is, truth is an absolute defense. These are the reasons, like in, as in all things, many reasons. But all these little things have added up to the point, it's like, why am I bothering? Um, I guess the, the, the main crux of the, the criticisms were I don't like people who hurt the store. I don't like people who, you know, it's basically, it's almost an attack on me and my family and my finances. Uh, it's an attack on the, all of us who shop here because uh, if uh, if they hurt the store and there's no store, everybody will suffer. Um, you know, the, the, if, if you don't want to shop here, that's fine. I don't care. I probably don't want you shopping here. But, but if you're asking me to do something for you and I do it and you don't hold up your part of the bargain, it pisses me off. And it's like, why, why should I, why should I um, put my neck out for you? You know, except out, out, out of you know, some sort of respect. And uh, I would think you have an obligation. And, um, and the reason I put it in the, in the writing, I guess I never really thought about it. It's going to get some, sort of, you know, people think of it scathing. I guess my thinking is that people who have gotten away with it shouldn't get away with it. They should be called, called on it. And uh, not that anything's going to happen. But uh, they, these are the type of people who go through life taking advantage of other people and never getting, um, never getting a slap on the wrist for it. So that's my little slap on the wrist. Most of these people don't care. They don't even know. They don't watch. The, they don't look at the, uh, the Facebook page. They don't even come pick up their stuff. So how would they know? They don't even know we're closing. How many people still come in here? You know, regular people come in here and say, ah, oh, I can't believe you're closing. It's like, yeah, I noticed it two months ago. So anyway, I'm getting a little excited. <laughs> Uh, as I said at the top of this episode, the announcement garnered many strong reactions. The vast majority of them were positive. Um, there was an outpouring of people talking about how much the store had meant to them, how sad they are that the store is closing. Many of them expressed support of you presently and you know in your future endeavors. Um, but then there were a number of criticisms. So the overall theme among the criticisms is that Many of the things that you're complaining about in the closing announcement are things that you could have remedied. So I'm going to have you respond. But first, I'm going to, I'm going to read uh, a number of the, of the reactions and then give you an opportunity to respond. So here's the first one. Classy move blaming the customers. Your store looked like a yard sale, and employees routinely face their backs to customers while watching TV. 
Yeah, I mean, that that's actually the only one that I actually took some note of. But I think you know, my reaction was, geez, you don't know anything about anything. You know, you certainly don't know people. You don't know, uh, you don't think two steps ahead, to, or two steps beyond to say, you know, what what are we doing here? I mean, this is a guy who's not a collector. He shouldn't be at a, a store like us. You know, let him buy his stuff online or let him buy his, uh, you know, go through a subscription service because he can't deal with people. And God help us if he's a psychologist. But uh, my my feeling was that if you had come into the store and you wanted to ask a question to any of the guys working here, and if they happened to be watching television, you would ask them. They could have they would certainly have helped you out. Um, if there was a discussion here of, uh, about some movies with between the customers and the guys working here, uh, you would always everybody's always been welcome to to put in their two cents or make some comment or whatever. Uh, that's how people got to know each other here, and because you see them every week, and the next thing you know, it's like, hey, how are you? You're not even talking about comic books. You're talking about music. You're talking about anything. But then. You know, you become friends. This is how you develop friendships here. So to me, this is a guy who doesn't know anything about people. Um, my reaction initially would have been, we would serve anybody, but we don't like to serve douchebags. And so uh, I'm glad you're not here. That's my reaction to that guy. This next one goes to uh, what I was saying before. Uh, I cleaned it up just a little bit. It's kind of a jerk move that he basically spent most of it blaming unreliable customers on his business downturn. If people aren't picking up their stuff, then stop ordering for them, or call them and follow up if they still want the stuff held. All the stuff he's blaming on customers seem like common sense fixes. Yeah, to me, this is a guy who doesn't have any common sense of his own because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Again, no retail experience, doesn't understand the kind of services we have to provide beyond just uh, having the stuff on the shelves. Uh, again, glad he's not shopping here. Um, I, I guess, you know, the, as I said, stupidity runs rampant on this planet. And uh, the less we have in the store, I'm happier. Playing devil's advocate here, um, again, some of the problems that, that you cite um, sort of beg the question, you know, why not take a deposit? If someone wants a, an expensive statue and they ask you to order it, why not require them to put down even 10%? So just to make them more likely to come back, or if they don't come back, at least you have something. Yeah, I think it's a sad statement about people if you have to do that. I mean, you, have, you I, I like to believe that, I mean, this is naive of me, I suppose, I like to believe that you take a person for his word. And he says, can you get this for me, and I'll pick it up when I see you. Or when I... but, but the guys who say, well, put it in the back for me, and I'll pick it up next time, and then six months later, and they come and say, oh, I forgot you had it in the back for me. It's like, Jesus Christ. Well, I shouldn't say that. Jeez Louise. I, I, uh, I, I take a person for, for, to, to hold up their end of the bargain, to, to be honorable. And uh, it pisses me off that they basically they take advantage of me. Now, to, to not take a deposit, I think it's just a service. I could take a deposit, but what are you going to do if the stuff doesn't come in at all? You know, it's like, well, gee, you know, it, it's supposed to come out in six months, and then I, three years later when it finally comes out, you know, what am I going to do? Because I gave the guy back his deposit a, a year later, you know? I, I, I got to get my thoughts together because I'm getting pissed off. Just thinking about these people pisses me off. <laughs> That's all. Well, along similar lines, uh, another category of customers who you admonish in this are the file reservists, the people who, for whom you pull books every week, every month, um, the people who, who don't pick up their books and it, and it piles up and then you're stuck with months worth you know, of unsold comic books. Um, when new reservists fill out, fill out their pull sheet, um, the official store policy does say that they have X amount of time, I believe it's three weeks, within which they have to pick up their books or else you will stop pulling for them and you'll put what's already been held back on the shelf. So, I mean, I guess why don't you follow your own policy? I guess to me it's more like the fine print that you never read. Um, it, everything is a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, I have people who live basically live in the Bronx or Manhattan. They only make it up here every two or three months. Um... Uh, I actually had a guy come in. He hadn't been here in a year. And I called him throughout the year and said, your stuff's piling up. And he goes, yeah, I, okay, I'll, I'll be there as soon as I can. And finally, when he found out it's, it's been a year, he said, I'll, I'll be up there. And he came and he bought the whole thing, a year's worth of books. But um, again, you know, you, you count on people being good people. And um, the ones that, that bother me are the ones that uh, the experience is, they, they will say, well, I, I just lost my job. And my first instinct is to say, is to protect the store. And when somebody loses their job, I think to myself, okay, they're not going to be able to afford comic books because they have to feed the family. So I'll say, do you want me to stop pulling? And they'll say, no, no, keep going. I'll be okay. 
And sure enough, you know, six months, eight months later, when you see them and you say, they'll say, uh, oh, I thought I told you to stop pulling. And I know I asked them specifically because that's my first instinct, instinct is to protect the store. So, you know, people like that, it's like they're so freaking inconsiderate that it's like, what, what, what a waste of human life. Um, I mean, that's extreme, but it just bothers the hell out of me because there are a lot of good people in this world. This final criticism that I'll share with you now, um, again, sort of points to, to the overall tone of the announcement. Personally, I've seen many business professionals retire or move to a different industry. Without fail, it's always a time to reflect back on the journey and share sentiment about the wonderful people met along the way and of all of the lessons learned and things accomplished. And there are many thank yous, acknowledgments, and sharing of credit. To mark the end of an era with what amounts to finger pointing and, well, what's in effect a bashing of the store policy that he himself is responsible for is petty and frankly uncharacteristic of a business leader. No, I disagree. I disagree. I don't think people should be, again, I don't think people who are taking advantage of you should be allowed to get away with that without at least being called on it. Um, again, I'm not saying, again, there are a lot of good people. There's still a lot of good people. And, uh, but the, those few who have taken advantage of the store, taken advantage of all of us, I don't think that they should be given a free pass. You know, if nothing else, I need mean an ass kicking. And then, uh, then there's justice in the world. In terms of closing versus selling, and I know that there have been some overtures from individuals who are interested in buying the store, and that's in flux at the moment, but how concerned, if at all, are you with the store's legacy? Is there any reservation about selling it because you don't know what might happen when you're not here? Are you concerned about, you know, the store going under and that tarnishing what you've built, or is that not as much of a concern? I don't think it really is a concern. I guess I look at it, I've always compared the store to be a ship, and I've been the captain. And I just look at it as if we sell the store, then somebody else is the captain. Uh, whether he continues to be, uh, you know, sail well or whether he sinks it, that's up to him. But, uh, you know, for my watch, I think we did a pretty good job and made a lot of people happy. Um, well, along those lines, to what extent do you consider the store to be a success? I mean, if nothing else, it's persisted uh, during a period where many other comic book shops in the area have closed or even opened and closed while the store has been here. Yeah, I mean, I've often said that back in 92, there were probably about two dozen comic book shops in Westchester County, that every little town in Westchester had one. It might have been not all comics. It might have been baseball cards and comics or something. But, but there, were a little, there was a little shop in every little town. Um, and some, some of them were actually big, bigger than us. And it alternate realities, just just putting away, keeping going. Why do you think that is? Too stubborn to quit. I guess I look at it and say, after all those stores are gone, we're the, really the last game in town. Now, there are a couple of stores that opened up, but they're like gaming stores of the comics. Um, and they're relatively new, about two years old. Um, but almost everybody else, I think almost everybody else is gone. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like, uh, what did I joke about being like Seinfeld, leaving, a, we're number one. Because we're, we're the only one. But uh, at this point, it's like, well, I might as well leave now and uh, instead of, uh, you know, I guess uh, deteriorate over time if the industry changes. But, um, but I, again, you know, the store has great potential. I, I, certainly, if, if we were to move to a different location, um, you know, better rent, if we had uh, uh, more capital, I suppose, to buy more product, and if I were 20 years younger and had more energy... I think uh, it could even be better. You know, there's certainly no competition in this area for us anymore because we're centrally located in Lower Westchester. Well, along those lines, um, is there anything that you wish you had accomplished with the store that you didn't? I mean, for me, as someone who's been a part of this community for a long time, it was I always wished that alternate realities could be, for Westchester, what Midtown Comics is for Manhattan. So did you ever think about a second location, about expanding? I never wanted to. Um, I always I thought it, working one store is so hard that working two stores would probably be three times as hard. Yeah, you know, as far as the overall look and such, I mean, I wish the air conditioning worked in the summertime. I wish the heat worked in the wintertime. I, I, again, I don't mind the, the fact that it's there's, these are piles of boxes because there's so many treasures inside every one of these white boxes that you have no idea what's there. But one day we'll find out, and it's like, wow, this is great. Um, so, you know, I, I know some people wanted to make, make it nicer and neater and such. Um 
I, I guess I take great comfort in it. If somebody's looking for a book and I can't find it, I know that it's within this 1,500 square feet, and that's good enough for me. Uh, one day we'll find it. That is good enough for you? That is good enough for me. We'll find it someday. Maybe if you come back, we'll find it next time. Well, one thing that I find a little interesting is that uh, there are many boxes of overstock uh, throughout the store, pretty much in any available open space. There, no empty space stays open for long. Um, yet for a retail store, there, there's a surprisingly high number of do not touch signs on, on many of these boxes, and they've grown increasingly aggressive over the years. Uh, one of the more recent ones, there's a little bit more to it, but the, the, the main part of it reads, do not touch, dumbass. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I guess experience has taught me that it doesn't matter what you write on the sign because people won't read them. People don't read. You know, you come to uh, the days, the, what was it? It was, uh, it was free comic book day when Sean got married. So we closed the store because we were all invited to the wedding. Best free comic book day you ever had, That was had, the best right? one we ever had. But uh, I really wanted to set a, a camera inside the store facing out so that people would come to the door, see the sign that says close, but still pull on, tug on the door and go, uh? And, um, and I realized that, I came to realize that if, if we had taken a car battery and, and tied it to the, to the door and said, don't touch this thing, it's going to electrocute you, they'll still grab it. <laughs> so... Even though signs, you know, there are times we buy collection and, and people seem to think that it's, it's, they're in their own house or something so they can go through anything they want and they'll lift it up. Even if the sign says, please do not touch because we haven't gone through this to price it or grade it, they'll still rummage through this stuff. And people, because it's not their stuff, are incredibly sloppy. Even the comic books that are on the shelves. For some reason, people, are, again, are stupid. They just they pick up a book and they can't figure out where to put it back. So the next thing you know, it's like a books, uh, books that are... Uh, starts with H. It suddenly, it's down with an M. Um, we're constantly putting putting books back in place and straightening out shelves. Um, people take the books out. We you know we protect the the trays by putting them into plastic bags and taping them closed because we don't, we're not like Barnes and Noble where they want you to read the book and destroy it so that nobody buys it. Um, Barnes and Noble is returnable for them, so they don't care. But um, but with us, since we buy this book, if if somebody decides to read it and this bends the corners and stuff like that. We can't sell it, but we're stuck. Um, so we put it in plastic bags and, and, uh, and tape it closed. And inevitably, people will take it, open it up, skim through it, and if they even try to put it back in the plastic bag, they put it in backwards or upside down or something like that, and they can't figure out where on the shelf, even though it's alphabetical, where to put it back. So the next thing you know, it's like all over the place. <sighs> anyway. Um, but do you think you would sell more if there weren't so many do-not-touch signs? Mm. No, not necessarily. There are a lot of browsers, people who like to touch everything, and they don't want to buy anything. They never want to spend. They never want to spend the money. The, be, it's a hundred fifty dollar book, and the only time they ever buy it is if we ever do the fifty percent off sale. So it's like, why do I bother with things like this? And why do I have to bother with these people? On the flip side of those customers who who annoy you are are the ones who are good and loyal customers, and the ones who you've had conversations with and cultivated friendships with. One of the reasons that, that you used to give for not closing was you had a reservation. You said, you know, if I close, where are all these people going to go? So I guess my question is why, you know, what, if anything, has changed to make it that that's not something that's holding you back anymore? Well, I guess what actually got me thinking about it was your movie. I mean, you did a lot of interviews with a lot of the customers here, and these are the re people who shopped here regularly. And, uh, and many of them would say something to the effect of, the, the store is very important to me. I can't imagine what it would be like without it. I love the store, which is great. However, for the, all these people who it was so important to them, today, two years later, we're looking and say, how many of these people are still around? Most of them are gone. And not that they've moved away. I mean, some, of course, moved away. But uh, uh, people have moved on with their lives. And I think this is just a, a reflection of what real life is like. Like, like. I remember, you know, you look at your high school friends and say, oh, we're going to be friends forever. But how many of them do you stay in touch with? And then you get to college and say, oh, these friends are going to be friends forever. But again, for the hundreds of people you knew, maybe one or two you're still in touch with. And maybe you don't even t stay in touch with them, but they're so good, they're such good friends that it's like, it's like yesterday when you speak to them. Um, you know, same thing with law school. And... Uh, and I, like, I worked at the law firm in Manhattan for a few years, and we had lunch together every single day. We went out in, on, in the evenings for a drink once in a while, and 
and you know we'd actually go to people to each other's houses every now and then for a barbecue or something like that but i don't think i'd stay in touch with any of them um so even with the store i mean realistically as much as you know we're friends here i know that in the real world when you say goodbye usually i think it's it could be forever and uh I mean, again all, all the friends in japan that uh you know in the martial arts club they're like, like brothers and sisters to me but i knew that when i said goodbye this is it i'm never going to see them again um now I've come to that point in my life where I think, you know, you, you see this, the, the video, and you see how, you know, the, uh, the people, again, it, it, nothing bad. You know, some of them got married, some of them got into relationships, some uh, moved away or, or found other interests, and you never see them. But uh, it's like I can't stay here for the time, that one time in six months or six years when they finally come back just to say, oh, this place is great. It's like it's not going to keep the store alive. And um, and I would like to have a life of my own one day. And this has been pretty much uh, the albatross. So now's a good time to go. Listen, it's, timing is perfect. You know, lease comes to an end. Marvel Universe is going to be changing. They're going to have their secret war and then change it, reboot the entire universe to something that we don't know what it is. Uh, DC Universe is having convergence, so they're going to get rid of the new 52 universe after three years of sinking sales. And reboot everything with old characters, and uh, it'll be something that we don't recognize. So, um, at this point, you know, it seemed like the perfect time to say, "I'm getting off." You know. Well, it's funny because I mean, as as we discussed before, you know, the threat of you closing was not a new one. And in fact, when you started talking about about it this time, you know, I was certainly skeptical. Um, I think one of the things that made it feel more real for me is. In the past, when you've spoken about leaving alternate realities, it was to walk the earth, a la Bruce Banner, David Banner, you know, going from town to town, helping people, washing well, I, dishes. I was thinking more like Kwai Chang Kane from Kung Fu. You know, you walk town to town, you help people, and then, uh, you know, so I'm Odo. I will help you. Well, I didn't want to be racist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you wanted to be a crab fisherman, just like on The Deadliest Catch. That was another one. I looked into it. I, you know, you can buy a crab boat for about ninety thousand, hundred thousand dollars, but it's a three-man boat. And of course, you know, the day I go out, we'll sink, and uh, I'll be lost at sea the first day. But everybody says, well, at least he went the way he wanted to. <laughs> but this time, when you talked about closing, you spoke of selling the remaining stock on eBay, which was something that was a lot more realistic, and again, for me, made this seem a lot more likely. So. You know, that brings me to the question of what, what are you going to do now? What does Steve Odo do when he finally, at long last, doesn't have an order form to do, doesn't have cycle sheets to do, and doesn't have delinquent customers to deal with? As you may remember, I used to bring my dog here. And uh, after Dad died, I couldn't leave the dog at home by herself all the time. So I brought her here. And, you know, she died of cancer a couple of years ago. And that dog was the best friend I ever had. So I said, uh, when... I can when I no, have, no longer have the store to take care of. And, uh, you know, now that mom's in a nursing home, I don't have to take care of her. Then I'll have a little bit more freedom that I can actually get a puppy and raise it and be my best friend and go with me wherever I go. Um, even just to go for walks, maybe lose some weight. That would that'd be nice instead of eating junk food all day. Um, so, you know, I'll probably end up being healthier, certainly uh, maybe happier. People tell me now that now that I know that the store is closing, I seem to be happier than I've ever been. Well, very soon your your 23-year nightmare will finally be, be at an end. For as much as it's been spoken of by you as as this nightmare, um, what, if any, positives, you know, can you can you offer? I mean, if you could do it all again, would you would you not have opened the store? Would you have not kept it for as long as you did? If I had everything to do again... I, instead of political science, I would have uh, been history major. Instead of law school, I would probably have gone to business school. Um, instead of law or the comic book shop, I probably would have wanted to uh, get involved in the stock market more. I love the stock market. Um, I mean, I day trade too, but uh, and, and a broker, but uh, and I do well with it. Like, I don't want to say I have a natural talent for it, but I do well with it, and I'd, I'd rather be spending my time doing my research and and, uh, and playing that. It's like, I guess, I'm a gambler. I hope it's better than making rent at the casino. But uh, um, I enjoy that part. It's like a game. And um, 
I guess that that's that's the difference. We, I I probably wouldn't have opened a comic book shop. So um, um, I might have invested in it if other guys wanted to do it, but I don't think I would have seen myself running it. Interesting. That's actually kind of surprising. I was expecting you to say that mm-hmm. you 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 wouldn't have changed that part of it. Oh no, I think a lot of it, it's just like you know we don't get second chances. And that's why I guess even even now the idea of closing a store is like if I don't do that and I'm stuck here for another ten years. You know, uh, I, life will have passed me by. I won't even ever get to catch up on West Wing or any DVDs that uh, I don't have a chance to watch. That you haven't even opened. Yes. That are shrink-wrapped. It's still shrink-wrapped. Um, well, that, you know, that view of the store that you just expressed is certainly in keeping with, you know, with what you've said in the past. Um, the very first time I interviewed you, this was quite a few years ago now, you said... The fact that the store does well is a source of some personal pride, but I know it's not the be-all and end-all. If it blew up, I wouldn't shed a tear. I look at the store, and as hard as it is, and as frustrating as it is sometimes, it's towards a path, but I don't know where I'm going. Life is supposed to be hard. If it were easy, what's the point? You always want to struggle. You want to make yourself a little better than you were the day before. Do you feel that you've made yourself better than the day before? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean... uh not the best that I could be. I have faults. I know that. But uh, I guess I, you know, my, my, well, I, you know, I'm not religious, but my my self-proclaimed religion is uh, you work hard, you try not to screw too many people along the way, and then you die. And that's, uh, and then you've done what you're supposed to do. That's the religion of Odo, which mm-hmm. is a perfect segue to uh, one of our lighter notes here, the Odoisms. The Odoisms refer to a series of pithy sayings um, that you often express, uh, in which you refer to yourself in the third person, that encapsulate your distinct worldview. What I consider to be the, the most important one, and I guess this would be different for each person, but the most important one to me, that were the most profound, is Hesitation Kills. And in fact, the, the title for this episode of the podcast is The Parable of the Flat Squirrel. So if, if you wouldn't mind explaining your Hesitation Kills Odoism. Um, I guess I've always noticed that uh, you're driving along the road and you see a squirrel trying to cross the road. And he sees you, but he decides to try to get across the road anyway. And then um, maybe partway through, he looks at you again and decides he's not going to make it. So he turns around and goes back to the sidewalk. But then he decides, maybe I can make it. And he turns around and goes back. And he goes back and forth, back and forth. As you get closer and closer, next thing you know, you've flattened him. And um, if he had just gone across the road instead of hesitating... He'd be alive, but now he's a flat squirrel, and you don't want to be a flat squirrel. And the, the reason it came up with the comic book store is that I often have people come in and they see something that they want to buy, but uh, for whatever reason, they decide, well, I'll, I won't pick it up now. And then when they come back in a week or a month, they'll, they'll look for it, and it's gone. And all I can look at them says, uh, I can only look at them and say, hesitation kills. You should have bought it when you saw it. You know, I sold it an hour after you left. Um, and now you never have one. So, um, maybe I don't say that, but, uh, but that's, that's why I, in collecting, you can't hesitate if you really want to get it. And, um, and again, I, I understand that people have said that I'm the worst, uh, <laughs> example because I hesitate all the time. I'm always second guessing, but, um, well, maybe the autoisms are more aspirational. I suppose that, but the, that's, that's how the flat squirrel and the flat squirrel productions and all that came about. Yes, I was very much inspired by that Odoism and the parable of the flat squirrel, and that's why my production company is Flat Squirrel Productions. So for people who watch the documentary or the trailer for this podcast or anything else that I do, they see that flattened orange squirrel uh, at the beginning. Um, A number of the other Odoisms um, imbue you with with certain abilities. Um, According to the Odoisms, you once absorbed so much heat uh, over the summer, that you stayed warm all winter. You can will yourself to health. You rebuild yourself molecule by molecule. To what extent do you do you believe these, or and to what extent are you presenting these more for humor? Um, I guess the whole thing with the heat, many times, because this is a crappy landlord, uh, the air conditioning will break down in the summertime. It could be 100 degrees outside. Our doors are closed. It's 80 degrees in here. People can walk in and think, oh, 20-degree drop, it feels so good. But when you're in here all day at 80 degrees, you feel sick. But you realize that you absorb so much heat that you can go home, stand in front of the air conditioner, and it, and you still can't get uh, cool. So 
when it happens day after day all summer long when uh when winter comes uh and it's 20 out 28 degrees outside you can still stand outside in a t-shirt and, and jeans and be comfortable and i assume that it's because i've absorbed all this heat that i don't get cold so is that a, a long-winded way of saying that you that you I, believe what you say i believe what i say it's true <laughs> it's, not, it's not a belief it's true it's fact um i can i can stand outside without getting cold i i i in in the winter time i'm i'm still hot i'm hot here and uh i don't know what to tell you it's just um i never feel cold anymore until it's about 23 degrees then i start to notice that it's a little chilly you know in the end what what do you hope the store and you but more specifically the store what do you hope that the store is remembered for whether it closes or whether someone takes it over you know what what are your aspirations as far as that's concerned I don't really think I have any aspirations. I think, I think what will happen is that after the store is gone, whether whether it's well, I shouldn't say it. if the store continues, obviously even the people who shop here it might be gone for them because uh, I'll say the Steve Odo era is over. But uh, I, th I think what's going to happen is you know, twenty years down the road, all you young guys will look back and say, "Oh, I remember that store. It was a good place." Um, but like like any bar or restaurant or your favorite pizza place that closes, yeah, it just uh, you know life it's just life moves on. Um, I think it'll, it'll be a good memory. I hope it's a good memory for a lot of people. I think it is. I think uh, again, I think for a majority of people, they they uh, it's, you know, even now I still have people coming in expressing. I haven't seen them in years, but they come in and express some regret that it's uh, that to see it end. But again, it's not a great part of their lives anymore, and it's just a good memory for them. And well, I can tell nice. you, I mean, I have about 20 people lined up to do this podcast, and, you know, they they wouldn't be doing it if the store didn't mean a lot. This podcast wouldn't exist if, if the store didn't mean a lot and if it didn't have as much of an impact on me as it's had. I always felt like we got you through high school and college. And law school. And law <laughs> all, all the papers you wrote about us and the, the, the scripts and the... The short stories, it's amazing. The store has truly been, uh, you know, a never-ending source of inspiration, for <laughs> sure. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say? No, no, it's all, it's, it's, I have no regrets, I don't think. You just said you regretted opening the store. Well, I have no regrets about, uh, you know, what, what we've done here. Um, I think we had a pretty good store. I think, I think we're still, you know, when we close, we're leaving at the top of the game. Uh, top, you know, king of the hill, and, uh. You know, I, I, I feel that, uh, yeah, we had, uh, it's been tough, but uh, the fact that uh, we can walk away, and I'll, I'll, I'll declare myself we're number one, that, um, that you know, it's, it was a good accomplishment, but uh, time to move on. That's all. Well, Steve, thank you very much for taking the time to be on this inaugural episode of My Comic Shop History. I look forward to speaking to you again for the final episode. What are we going to talk about in the final episode? Oh, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. Oh, I don't know. No more ranting and raving. Well, once again, thank you for being on the show. Uh, to everyone who has listened to this first episode, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed what you heard and that you tune in for the subsequent episodes. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to connect via the podcast's Facebook page. Uh, you can also tweet at me. My Twitter handle is at Desi Westside. That's D-E-S-I. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time. And don't be a flat squirrel. I'm